or as I referred to it earlier on as Jesus' meltdown moment. And it's interesting because in John, the Gospel of John, he recalls the incident at the very beginning of Jesus' period of ministry, whereas the other Gospels record it at the end. And there's some debate amongst biblical scholars as to whether there were two such incidents or whether the temple cleansing only occurred once. But whatever your view, there's very good reason for John to place this right at the start of Jesus' public ministry. Because John wants us to know who Jesus really is right from the start. Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Son of God, the light of the world, the master over all things, including the Lord of the temple. So let's start by setting the scene, shall we? Jesus and his disciples are going to the temple to attend, not Glastonbury, but the Passover celebration. Now the story of the Passover, as you all know, is recorded in the book of Exodus. And one day, through a man named Moses, God came to the rescue of his people, the Israelites, who'd been held captive in Egypt and been treated pretty badly as slave labour. I think it was uh, Ramses II was the reigning pharaoh at the time. And uh, if you read Exodus 5, you hear all about uh, the things he got up to. Even at one point when they the Israelites asked to go and make sacrifices to their God. He said, no, not only are you not going to do that, I'm not going to let you go, but also I'm going to take away the straw that you have for making bricks and you've still got to achieve your daily quota of brick making, but you've got to go and find your own straw and there's going to be no let up. And of course, uh, the Israelites typically blame Moses and Aaron for the, the, the plight they're in. Um, because perhaps he was the sort of go-between uh, and they were suffering uh, because of that. But anyway, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 to 7, it says, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cries. I care about their suffering and I have come to rescue them. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out of Egypt. And after making a lot of excuses, Mosley finally obeys God. That's typical, isn't it? We know it's a bit like us. And God asks us to do something. We think of everything, every other reason why we shouldn't do it. Um, and Moses was just the same. And of course, Pharaoh, as I said, refused to let the Israelites go. So God sent ten plagues to persuade him. And with the final plague, God promised to strike dead every firstborn son in Egypt at, at midnight on the 15th day of Nisan. Now, I thought Nissan was a Japanese car manufacturer, but in fact, I drive a Nissan. It's parked out the front there. Um, but in this instance, Nissan is on the Hebrew calendar, and it's the first month of the ecclesiastical year and the seventh month of the civil year, and it occurs around our Easter time, so it's around March, April time it occurs. And the Lord provided instructions to Moses so his people would be spared, and each Hebrew family was to take a lamb they then had to slaughter it and place some of the blood on the door frames of their homes. And when the destroyer or angel of death passed over Egypt, then he would not enter the homes that were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And these and other instructions became part of a lasting ordinance from God 
for the observance of the Passover feast so that future generations would always remember God's great deliverance. So now we fast forward to the yearly Passover celebrations in Jerusalem that Jesus and his, and his followers are attending. And in those times, every Jewish male was expected to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during this time. And in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, it says this, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place that he would choose at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So this is a week-long festival, and the Passover was on one day, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread lasted the rest of the week. But the entire week commemorated the freeing of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Now Jerusalem at that time was both the religious and uh, political seat of Palestine and the place where the Messiah was expected to arrive. The temple was located there and many Jewish families from far and wide, even abroad, would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate these key feasts. The temple was on an imposing site on Mount Moriah, but also known as Mount Zion, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. This is said to be the same mount upon which Abraham, who in obedience to God was just about to sacrifice his son Isaac, whom he loved very much when an angel quickly stopped him and informed him that he had passed the test of faith. Solomon built the first temple on that site about a thousand years earlier, around 949 BC, but that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then there was a second temple was started to be built again in 515 BC, and uh, later Herod the Great, um, he who put the death sentence on the infant Jesus, Herod the Great had enlarged it and remodeled it, but wouldn't live to see its completion. So the site of the temple is actually huge. It occupies some 35 acres of land. In its heyday, it had walls and pillars of polished white limestone, described by the Jewish historian Josephus as shining like glistening snow on a mountaintop. I would have shown you a picture of a model, but we've had slight problems with our projection this morning. Um, but. Uh, there were 10 large gates, some people say there were 8, some people say there were 12, but at least there were a large number of gates. Um, and a lot of them were covered in gold and silver. So you can imagine this gleaming edifice, as it were. Uh, it had long double cloisters with huge white marble pillars along the outer courtyard area. Of course, all that's left now, uh, those of you who have seen it or seen pictures of it, are the uh, western wall or wailing wall the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Been very much in the news recently, hasn't it, with Trump's so-called deal of the century, which uh, we're not sure about, really, but there you go. Anyway, the temple area was always crowded during Passover with thousands of out-of-town visitors, and the religious leaders crowded it even further by allowing money changers and merchants to set up booths in the court of the Gentiles, which are the outer courts 
and everyone had to pay a temple tax in local currency, so visitors to the temple had to have their money changed. But the money changers would charge exorbitant uh, rates, and people were at the same time also required to make sacrifices for their sins. And because many people had to make long journeys, they couldn't really bring their own animals, and so often what they found if they had brought their animals that they would get rejected because they found that the animal had imperfections and wasn't deemed to be uh, sufficiently pure. So animal merchants would do a flourishing business in the temple courtyard and not surprisingly the price of animals was much higher in the temple than elsewhere. So Jesus vents his anger at the merchants and the temple authorities who exploited those who'd come to God's house to worship. And he makes this whip out of cords. Note the symbolism here, perhaps hinting at the scourging that the Lamb of God would have to endure prior to his crucifixion. He makes a whip out of cords and he drives all from the temple area, including sheep and cattle, scatters coins of the money changers, overturns their tables, shouts at the people selling doves to get them out of here, and says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? Now don't make the mistake of reading that passage from John and believe that Jesus was also driving the people away. There's a deliberate distinction here in the word all where it says he drove all from the temple area because it specifies including sheep and cattle. He's referring to the animals. He's driving the animals, not the people, away. People are precious to God. And with God's plan, Jesus would become the way people came to God. Not through the offering of an animal sacrifice and purification ceremonies and intermediaries like priests. And now, through Jesus, the arms of God's love would extend not just to his chosen people, the Jews, but to all mankind, to people of all nations. Of course, Jesus had no time for the profiteers like the money changers and the overinflated egos of the priests and the Jewish leaders who were making a bit of a killing out of all the people coming to worship God. But should we really think that the presence of all these noisy animals and commerce bothered Jesus just because they spoiled the worshipful atmosphere? Well, I think an ancient temple wasn't supposed to be like a quiet cathedral. It would have been a loud bustling place. Thousands of people there. The sale of animals was essential for the temple's main function as a place for the offering of animal sacrifices. And as I said, bringing an animal from one's home risks something happening to it on its way. So many chose to sell their own animal, bring the money with them, and purchase a replacement once they got to the temple in Jerusalem. And the money changers were there to convert various currencies into one standard coinage. This was the Tyrian shekel that was used for the payment of the annual temple tax. So both the selling of animals for sacrifices and the payment of the temple tax were activities required by Jewish law and central to the temple's functions. Because Jesus drove out the animals that were central for sacrifices, many scholars view this action not just as cleansing 
of the temple, but also as a symbolic act predicting its destruction. So this puts us in line with the actions of Israel's earlier prophets. It puts Jesus in line with that. And it agrees with the words that in John 2 verse 19 has Jesus utter, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus seems to have envisaged that the temple would be removed to make room for whatever more perfect state of affairs would replace it in the kingdom of God. The Jewish authorities' response, of course, shows that they were thinking purely of the physical building of the temple rather than God's greater plan. Their response, what was it? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. And this is where Jesus makes a subtle but significant metaphorical move. He's not referring to the temple building but to his own body. Jesus is the temple that will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. Jesus is supplanting the temple as the primary means whereby we are brought close to God. He's calling us to redirect our allegiances from the old ways of organized religion to a new and direct relationship with God himself through Jesus the Son. And with the arrival of Jesus, we've moved from a religion that requires animal sacrifices as a way of worshipping God to Jesus the Lamb that would become the ultimate sacrifice for people of all nations. Now the Jewish leaders were all about following the rules. They believed they had what's known as covenantal authority. The Bible is filled with uh, examples of this, with covenant promises. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve to give them a child that would crush the head of Satan. God made a covenant with Noah, marked by a rainbow, to never again destroy the earth with water. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants. God made a covenant with the nation of Israel, that's Abraham's descendants. So the Jewish people rightly came to see themselves as the children of God, children of Abraham, children of promise. The Jews expressed it this way, we are children of Abraham, how can we ever be condemned? We're covered. And if you read the book of Romans, chapter two, verse four, Paul, addresses the fallacy of this thinking which had carried on into the early church. And he says, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But with Jesus, following the rules is less important than being his friend. Adhering to things like doctrine, polity and laws are less important than personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Which then leads us into the presence of the Almighty God. And in John 12 verse 45, Jesus says, When you look at me, then you look at the one who sent me. So effectively, when we know Jesus, we know God.
Now, the title of our topic today was Religious People Need Jesus. Well, it's almost of a answers itself, doesn't it? But then you might choose to be religious some of the time, perhaps on a Sunday. You come to church, perhaps all these things just, you know, it's nice, nice experience. It just washes over us and we go away and the next day we're completely unchanged. And we just carry on our normal ways. It's just like a, eating a nice meal, going on a nice holiday, having a nice trip to the cinema, to the theatre. It's just a nice experience. But does it matter how we behave? Surely it doesn't really matter how we behave, because God will always forgive us, won't he? Well, alternatively, when we relate directly with Jesus, when we follow his commands, when we follow his teaching, when we follow his practices, then a personal relationship with Jesus becomes the foundation of Christian life. And you can't have that unless you truly repent of your sins and ask Jesus to be your saviour and try to lead a godly life. Yes, we will make mistakes. We will sin. And, that, and we know that God will forgive us. But it's a question of repenting and trying to lead a godly life. So if you've made that decision, then you would know that in his physical absence, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're called to work together cooperatively and collaboratively ordering ourselves just like the early Christian apostles and churches and by the gift of the Holy Spirit a further shift is made we have now become like the body of Christ the new temple the connection through which Jesus Christ relates to the world Milford Baptist Church or temple, if you like. It isn't made of stone, bricks, mortar, steel, wood. The building is. But this church is us, you and me. We are the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Working together, we can deepen our personal relationship with Christ and be more effective about bringing about his mission. And when we're driven by the mission of Christ, when we follow the mind of Christ, when we become the heart of Christ, then we are living with integrity as Christ's own disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Also in 1 Corinthians, this time in chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. 
So now we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, sacrificed to set us free from the bondage to sin. And like the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites in Egypt to protect the firstborn from the angel of death, the blood of Jesus covers and protects us. And his body was broken to free us from eternal death. In Luke chapter 22, verses 15 to 16, it says, Jesus shared the Passover feast with his apostles, saying, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. One week before his death, Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 42, that he was the stone the builders rejected. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. God commanded the Israelites to commemorate the great deliverance always through the Passover meal. Jesus Christ instructed his followers to remember his sacrifice continually through the Lord's Supper. Now there are many things in life that serve as barriers, serve as stumbling blocks, as impediments to a life lived in close relationship with Jesus. And just before his death, Jesus gave a new command to his disciples. In John 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said, Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Sometimes we need Jesus to overturn those tables in our lives that prevent us having a proper relationship with God. At the very end of our reading this morning from John's Gospel, it says in John 2, verses 23 to 25, many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. The Son of God knows all about human nature. Jesus was well aware about the truth of Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 where it states the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Jesus was discerning and he knew that the faith of some followers was superficial. Some of those claiming to believe in Jesus at this time would later yell Crucify him. It's easy to believe, isn't it, when it's exciting, when it's fresh. But sometimes the road gets a bit rough and it gets a bit steep and we face a real test in our faith. The good news is the veil in the temple has been torn. Jesus has become our high priest. The final sacrifice has been made. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has become Jesus, the Lion. And through the saving grace of Jesus, 
we could enter the Holy of Holies to come before the throne of God. Then we can truly say, in Jesus, we have a living hope. Just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that through the gift of your Holy Spirit and the saving grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, that the temple within us will be a holy place. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. We pray that our hearts will be a refuge where doves of peace roost. May it be a garden that bears the fruits of a generous spirit. O oh Lord, take what is corrupt and withered within us. Overturn those tables within our lives that prevent us from living in a close relationship with you. And let our hearts break forth in beauty to glisten like snow on a mountaintop with purity and to be a temple of praise and worship to Almighty God. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to sing again the song that the band introduced right at the start called Living Hope.